From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, today's guest is Dr. Hayatun Silam, and she's Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Academy of Engineering in the United Kingdom. And in fact, she's the first woman to serve in that role. But she actually started life as a biochemist in the cancer research field. So it seemed to me to be a really weird switch of career to go from biology to engineering. But then I remembered our work at MGI on the biological revolution, and that showed different disciplines coming together to create what I think is a golden age of innovation. That's right. The bio-revolution really is about a convergence of biological innovations and computing technologies, including engineering. And so in that light, it's actually not that surprising to talk about Dr. Selim's career segue from basic science into engineering. And as she points out, engineers have produced the instruments that all basic research depends on. Yes, indeed. And, And one of the themes that comes out strongly from our conversation is that it's people who break out of those narrow career silos and have transferable skills, of course, who are really going to be the people who unlock new possibilities. I really look forward to listening in. Hi, Arden. Thanks very much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. So may I just start with a bit of your background? Because I think you were brought up and educated in the UK, but you have a very interesting name and I'm dying to know what your family background is. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Janet. I'm really happy to, to be here and, and also happy to explain a little bit about my name. Nobody yet has ever guessed where it comes from. So, yeah, I do have an unusual ethnic origin. My my mother is half Indian, half English, and my father is Cape Malay, so he comes from South Africa. But his ancestors came probably primarily from Indonesia, but it's it's a mixed ethnic group in itself. And then my name, Hayatun, is a sort of Indonesian version of an Arabic name. And my surname, Silham, is because my husband is Dutch-Belgian, so it's his name. So so our kids had to learn their fractions very early to be able to describe their ethnicity. And it's quite funny because I suppose, you know, you don't think about these things uh, as you're growing up. You are who you are. But I've realised, I suppose, quite late on how important that mixed heritage has been to my identity. My earliest memories are probably of thinking about how do I behave, dress, speak in different groups. So it, it... it sort of became very core to to the way I behaved to try to think about how to make people feel comfortable with me. I was very aware of my being different and I was trying to minimise how visible that was to other people. And I probably only realised that I was doing this inadvertent knocking the corners off myself in my 30s. And then, of course, I started to think, well, actually, is that what I want to do? And I think it has taken me time to fully inhabit those those corners of my identity. But I hope that that experience in some way has made me a better ally and a better advocate for the work I now do on diversity and inclusion. So I always think that differentness is a good basis for developing empathy which I think is a really important part of good leadership. So I'll always be an outside on the inside, but I'm happy with that these days. Sounds good to me. Well, I really want to talk to you about your work with diversity. But first of all, I, I was fascinated um, to talk about your career in uh, as a biochemist, I think, um, and particularly your work on cancer. Um, so many of us have been touched by cancer, and you've had such a distinguished career in that field. And so much is happening, which is really exciting um, in terms of the innovation and the biotech that's going into fighting cancer, something that MGI actually talked about in a report called the Biorevolution. And I just wanted to know what most excites you about what's happening at the moment. 
Yeah. Oh, gosh, Janet, what's happening now is is totally mind-blowing. And I, I would never have had the imagination to foresee what was coming down the line when I was working in the lab back in the day. So I'm spoiled for choice in terms of things that excite me. But I, I would actually pick out AlphaFold, um, which I'm sure you, you're aware of, but it's um, from the AI company DeepMind. And to me, this is one of those monumental steps forward for biology, which creates um, a platform which is going to, I think, drive all sorts of other breakthroughs and, and make possible applications that we haven't yet thought of. So what AlphaFold does is to use AI to accurately predict 3D um, structures of proteins. So proteins are the workhorses of the cell, as you know, and it's been one of those grand challenges in biology to work out how to predict the structure of a protein and people have spent their life work trying to characterise the structure of an individual protein and AlphaFold have unlocked a capability that I think is going to transform medicine. And it's it's also, I think it's interesting because it's an example of a really influential wider direction, which is engineering biology. And I know you've had some other brilliant guests who've talked a bit about that. And that's bringing engineering tools and, and techniques and mindsets into biology and medicine in, in a very exciting way. It's creating positive disruption, both in terms of how we do biomedical research and how we then develop biologically based molecules, parts, processes, materials at scale. And that in turn is going to help us do all sorts of incredible things um, from new materials to new approaches to manufacturing to new treatments for disease. So I think this is this is a pretty special moment, actually. We And we do, too. It's extraordinary, this confluence of computing, engineering and biology and and medicine all working together to create something that we, as you say, could never have envisaged, I think. That's absolutely right. I think it must be so exciting for people coming into the field now. I think we're still a bit stuck in our silos, those of us who've been rattling around for a while. But actually having people who have those um, transferable skills and versatile mindsets who are not um, bound by those sort of traditional disciplines that, that we all were funneled into when we were going through the education system, that's going to be, again, another process of unlocking possibilities that we haven't even dreamt of yet. At first glance, um, I look at your segue from biochemistry into engineering is kind of weird but in that context it makes a lot of sense but how did it happen for you that you went into engineering? Yeah well it it, it wasn't a, as you can probably tell from looking at my CTV it wasn't a planned career change. Unfortunately uh, I was in the last year of uh, my PhD and I developed very severe chemical sensitivities so that meant I really couldn't pursue a lab-based career anymore. So one day I left the lab and I was never allowed back in. It was that extreme. And so I had to find something else to do. And I, and I sort of stumbled into the world of engineering and science policy without really knowing very much about it at all. But as you alluded to, though, I think there's a lot to be said for migrating laterally in your career. Um, we need people who are multilingual in their sort of disciplinary background, their training. They're going to have the advantage. And, you know, when we look at how the world of work is changing, you've I know you do a lot of work on that at MGI. If, if you say conservatively, we're going to expect to have 50-year careers, the idea that you start out on day one doing the thing you're still going to be doing 50 years later is neither very attractive nor realistic. So I think we need to, to have a, this sort of this mindset of, of not this linear career path, but much more based around career chapters. 
And so I certainly found that that first career chapter for me has been massively valuable. That scientific training has, I think, underpinned everything I've gone on to do, but I've also gained new perspectives along the way that I think have complemented it. And looking back, one of the things I find quite shocking is that I had such a narrow view of what, what biochemistry and cancer research actually was about and where it sat in terms of a broader ecosystem. I had no idea that without the work of engineers, any great breakthroughs made in our lab would um, actually never benefit anybody. They wouldn't benefit any patients. I never thought about the engineering that had produced the instrumentation that every aspect of our research depended on. I never thought about how you got from that you know, discovery, that insight in the lab to something that could be manufactured at scale and how you then ended up managing the logistics to get the delivery into patients. And I think that does matter because this sort of slightly narrow and unrealistic lone genius model of science is it's very alienating for people. It doesn't acknowledge the huge contribution that so many people, including those who work at technician level, actually contribute to the overall endeavour. And I don't think it, it helps in terms of giving wide, the wider public the sense that they can connect to and have some ownership over research and innovation. And it, it's just not how innovation works. It's not, it's not an accurate description of how we deliver benefit from our investments in research and innovation. Because it's interesting that we're in a world that's digitising and dematerialising and everything is digital. I mean, MGI did a report which was it was saying that intangibles, not just software, but managerial organisational skills and, and talent and the rest of it, could be more than half of investment and actually quite soon. But in that dematerialised world, how does engineering fit in? Well, I think you'd expect me to say that it's highly relevant, Janet, and I'm not going to disappoint you. Um, so engineers, of course, also deliver our digital economy, you know, the, the software that we that runs our lives and the hardware that we use to interact with that software, that's all engineered. But I also think that there's an overemphasis on this distinction between di physical and digital or manufacturing and services. Engineering and manufacturing increasingly rely on digitisation, whether that's you know, just more efficient use of back office software or at the other end of the spectrum, highly sophisticated digital twins. And then, you know, think about something like the importance of servitization. It's massive for engineering. More and more manufacturing companies are shifting their business model to be much less about selling a product and more about selling services based around those products. And every engineer into the future is going to have to be a digital engineer of some kind. And those, those moves like servitization, they have all sorts of benefits, including for sustainability. So, you know, it enables you to do things like ensure that companies retain responsibility for a product throughout its life cycle, not just putting it out in the world and not worrying about what happens to it thereafter. But on the other hand, I do also think it's worth just dwelling for a moment on the fact that the pandemic brought home to lots of us that the ability to actually produce stuff, key products, key goods, on a, on a local or a national basis is a fundamental part of how we create resilience at the domestic or the local or the community level. And that I think it's quite useful counterweight to, to the highly complex and integrated economic model based on these incredible global supply chains and the just-in-time methodologies which have become so important to the way the global economy runs. There's nothing wrong with that in many respects, but I think it's also, it's also interesting to note how the pandemic has caused people to just reflect on, on what is it that they want out of their economy and society and what role does manufacturing and the ability to produce stuff play in that. And I think that's part of a desire for people to 
also be able to have more control over the provenance of things that they consume and that they use, including for ethical, environmental or social reasons. So I think it's a very important trend, but I don't think that engineering is going to be any less significant. So I hope I didn't disappoint you with my enthusiastic response to that, Janet. (laughs) I I was fully expecting it. In Asia, for example, you know, the, the digital and the physical are beginning to sort of collide in a much more meaningful way that the physical is coming back. People don't want just a digital life. They want a physical life too. So at the same time as you have kids, you know, living in the metaverse, you have communities wanting to barter with each other and share tools and share books and share cars. So it's an interesting sort of combination of the physical and the digital. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on, Janet. One more question, I think, about engineering, and and you've already communicated incredible excitement, but point out one thing that really excites you about engineering today. It's a fact that engineers shape our world, Janet, that gets me out of bed every day. They are the hidden enablers of everything that we take for granted in modern life. You know, literally from turning on the tap to the smartphones that we check the moment we've woken up to clean energy to access to medicine. Engineers literally design, deliver the physical and digital infrastructure, the services that we rely on every day, even if we are totally oblivious to it. And as such, it is a profession that has the enormous potential to impact on both people and planet. And I think that's why I feel excited about engineering. (laughs) I I want to talk to you about the environment. You've talked about clean energy and sustainability already um, in much of what you've said. And you are the chair of the St Andrews Prize for the Environment. Can you tell us how that came about uh, and, and what that prize is about? Yeah, so I'm delighted to be the the chair of the judges for the St Andrews Prize for the Environment. You know, tackling the climate crisis, tackling our ability to live sustainably on this planet is simply the biggest global challenge confronting all of us. So it's a wonderful initiative to be involved with. And it really enables us to identify and to celebrate extraordinary change makers who who are committing their lives to creating innovative, impactful, scalable solutions to this climate and sustainability crisis that we're facing. And I can tell you that it's one of the most uplifting things you can do. Yes, we have no shortage of things to depress us around what we're doing to the planet, but it's impossible not to be uplifted, (laughs) impressed and inspired by the passion and the, the commitment and the creativity of these change makers that we meet through the prize. Could you maybe just point to a couple of examples of these change makers that particularly excite you? You don't need to name them, but I'd love to know what areas they're working in. There are so many fantastic change makers we meet through this prize. It's quite hard to pick out just one or two. But actually, I think this year's winner, which is an organisation called Snow Change Cooperative, was a really good exemplar of the sort of things that, that we do uncover through the prize. So, What Snow Change Cooperative does is focused on rewilding landscapes in Finland using traditional knowledge, working very closely with Indigenous communities. In fact, I would say with a leadership embedded within Indigenous communities and blending that connection with the Indigenous knowledge and with rigorous science. So they, they work very closely with the Sami in Finland but they also have connections into the IPCC process. And they're they're doing a really thorough evidence-based set of activities, which we believe have the potential to drive systemic change and impact at scale 
for both climate and communities. And that integrated approach, I think, is the sort of thing that, that we find particularly compelling. And I think it was also interesting that this is happening on our doorstep in Europe. So sometimes people think about those sorts of opportunities and these sorts of projects that, that focus on indigenous communities as being things that happen a long way away from Europe. And this is happening right on our doorstep. And it has huge potential for, for climate gains, but also a, a lot that we can learn about how to do this in a more impactful way across the globe, actually. You're so right that the breadth of community engagement and the, all the sort of the, the game-changing um, innovation that's happening in, in communities on the ground is just huge. Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic that we're going to tackle this thing? Janet, I, I'm often describe myself as a relentless optimist. It's not something I choose to do. I can't help myself. Um, but I think it's really important for optimism to not be a passive state. You know, optimism should be based on evidence and the action that you and others are taking. We are facing an enormous challenge. It's a multi-layered system of systems challenge. You know, we're asking societies and economies right around the world to undergo simultaneous transformation of a whole set of vital and interconnected systems from transport and housing to energy manufacturing. We have to create whole new industries from scratch, development to maturity. We need sweeping societal, cultural, behavioural, structural change. And so I, I'm not underestimating what's involved, but at the same time, you know, we've just come through a global pandemic where I think if there is one takeaway that I certainly have, it's that we mustn't lack the ambition to and the courage to aim really high, because when we find that we have no other choice, we can do things that we never dreamt were possible. And we did those extraordinary things on timescales that seemed fanciful because we felt that the imperative was strong enough. We put collective interest first. We harnessed shared creativity. We really collaborated across cultures, communities, disciplines, professions. And I think, you know, that has to be the proof point that we take forward now into the climate challenge. Yes, it showed us that we are actually capable of making decisions and making decisions very, very quickly and changing our business models. That's absolutely right. And, and in terms of engineering, you know, we are seeing the whole profession pivot to really understand and to step up to the role that we can play, both in terms of navigating this very complex systems challenge, because we need to take that system view to understand interdependencies and trade-offs where those big opportunities are for leverage and incent aligning incentives so that we can get all parts of our economy and the global economy working towards this joint outcome that we we all need but also making sure that the engineers that that are trained and that emerge from the engineering um, education skills system have the right skills and mindset to really contribute and to be part of sustainable leadership which, which leads us very nicely into some of your diversity work and the fact that girls are just not training to be engineers. I think that they study STEM subjects in general less than boys. And I believe only 20% of A-level physics students are girls and that percentage has barely changed. How do we change that? Yeah, Janet, I, this, is, <laughs> this is a big issue for engineering. So obviously we're talking about UK figures here, but we still have a profession that is only 14.5% uh, made up of women in engineering in the UK, which is a totally unacceptable place to be. As you say, the, the 
the pace of change is nowhere near as fast as we need it to be. So if you look at the gender balance of the people who are choosing to take engineering higher degrees, we will take till till 2085 to achieve gender parity if we continue along the trajectory that we're on now. And, you know, as I've talked about already, engineers are very much serving society. They play a very important role in shaping society. They need to reflect society. So one thing that's really important is that often engineering is clumped together as part of STEM. And there's a really different picture depending on where you are in those letters and the acronym of STEM. So where I started in biochemistry, women are in the majority right through most of the profession. Yes, there are across, I think, all of society challenges around representation at the most senior leadership levels. But in biological sciences, psychology, subjects allied to medicine and so forth, women are in the majority, girls are in the majority in terms of the subjects that, that, that lead to those, those careers. And it's engineering, computer science, physics that brings that average for STEM down. Here, girls are significantly underrepresented, girls and women. And so that has to be one of the things that, that is an absolute priority to change. So one of the things that the Academy has been doing uh, with partners right across the industry is running a perceptions change programme called This Is Engineering. So This Is Engineering aims to reposition engineering the minds of young people and those influence them by challenging those really narrow, outdated stereotypes, often centred around a man in a hard hat and a high-vis jacket. We love PPE, personal protective equipment in engineering, but of course it's a very reductive view of, of who engineers are and what they do that simply doesn't appeal to enough people and it doesn't reflect the sheer diversity of modern engineering careers. So This Is Engineering is a social media-based campaign and so far the videos that feature early career engineers um, have been viewed by a roughly gender-balanced audience in the main over 54 million times since we launched in 2018. So it's a start. There's a huge amount more to do. And really what, what, we, what, we, what we need everyone's help with is just moving on in terms of the perception of engineering as a career that's, that's manual, that's dirty, that's about in the industries of the past. As we were saying earlier, engineers shape our world <laughs> and we need people from all backgrounds to see futures for themselves in those professions. And the great news is that for women that do pursue engineering degree, engineering careers rather, uh, we have data to show that they really, really love their jobs in the main. <laughs> so it's a very high career satisfaction direction to choose for those that make it. And, and is it well paid? Because one of the, um, the, the for sources of empowerment for women is to move into higher paid jobs, more productive jobs, higher paid jobs. And I guess engineering might be one of those. Yes, absolutely. So there is definitely a salary premium for people who have got a first degree in engineering. Not all those people work in engineering degrees. It's one of those great degrees that's in demand in lots of different sectors. So it's it's a flexible start in life, if you like. But what we also have done is looked at the gender pay gap within engineering to make sure that we haven't got a problem with with well not I think society has a problem with the gender pay gap but to understand specifically for engineering roles what that looks like and what we see is that for the for the UK looking at pay data for over 42,000 engineers the gender pay gap is smaller than it is for the average across the UK workforce and really the key contributor the key factor to that gender pay gap is um that we don't have enough women in senior roles. So it's back to this wider challenge around diversifying the profession. But actually, there's good news on the pay front for those that do go into engineering. Well, that's a good incentive, at least one of the incentives. 
But obviously, diversity is goes beyond gender. It's also ethnic diversity. And um, another of the many hats that you wear is uh, working with Sir Lewis Hamilton to uh, promote ethnic diversity in motorsport. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, Janet, that was one of the slightly more unexpected parts of my 2020, 2021 year. Um, well, the Academy elected Sir Lewis Hamilton as a honorary fellow of the Academy because he's been such an extraordinary advocate for engineering throughout his career. So he is relatively unusual in that he's routinely credited his race engineers when he's talked about his own success. And that makes a real difference to the visibility of engineering and engineering careers because he is, of course, such a high profile and such a visible influential role model. And following his election as an honorary fellow, he has been very supportive of the This Is Engineering campaign, which I just talked about. And crucially, and I think really quite unusually, when Sir Lewis decided that he wanted to really step up and and use the platform that he has to take more decisive action to diversify Formula One and, and motorsport more generally, his starting point was, I know what I want to achieve, but I don't know what the evidence says about the most effective way to do it. And so he partnered up with the Academy to fill that evidence gap. And I was very honoured to co-chair his commission with him. We spent the best part of last year working with an expert team of commissioners to try to understand what does underpin the lack of black representation, in particular in STEM roles in UK motorsports. So focusing much less on the drivers, but on the teams that really power all of their successes. And then, of course, to understand which interventions are going to be most effective in addressing it. And one of the things that was really unusual, actually, was because we were quite focused, we were looking at STEM roles in UK motorsport, we could take a whole systems view. And that meant we could look at everything from the employment and recruitment practices in the Formula One teams through to the experiences of young black people in schools. And as a result of that, I think we found a lot of data and evidence and insight that I think is of relevance beyond motorsport. So, for example, you see gaps in opportunity and differential experiences coming into play really, really early. By GCSE, which are the exams that you do when you're 16, you can already see that Black Caribbean students are falling behind their peers in subjects like science and maths, which, of course, affects their ability to pursue these at a higher level, which in turn locks them out of careers in, in motorsport, at least in STEM roles. And you see that as we're seeing across all of society, race and ethnicity intersect very strongly with factors like socioeconomic status. So deprivation reduces attainment across all ethnic groups, as you, I think, would expect. But again, lower proportions of black Caribbean students achieve higher grades compared with their white British counterparts, even when you take that into account. And so we were able to to look in the round and you go up to the sort of other end of the, the, the career spectrum for those that make it into motorsport. You also see differential outcomes for graduates from engineering and motorsport degrees, depending on whether they're black graduates or white graduates. And there's some really disappointing evidence about what I guess a lot of people would call microaggressions. I'm not sure that does justice to it. And certainly outright racism being passed off as banter, unfortunately, in quite a common way across the motorsport workforce. So we were able to look at all that in the round and come up with a set of Uh, recommendations and actions that we believe will help to make a real difference. And and presumably many of the issues that you turned up in that industry are found in other industries too. In the US, the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility has been set up and the focus at the moment is on the US, but I mean, these are universal issues. I mean, how far do we have to go and how, how widespread is this? Yes, I think, Janet, you're absolutely right that 
almost all the insights and lessons that you learn from these deep dives are things that can inform wider action. I'm, I'm more familiar with the position in the UK than the US, um, so most of my comments reflect that. But I do, I do see some signs of change. So you'll hear the opt- optimist in me again <laughs> creeping out. I would say that we've made a key step forward in terms of the fact that, that no credible leader, in my view, of a significant organisation would now say, well, it's nothing to do with me or it's, it's not that important. And I know that sounds like I'm setting a really low bar, but that is not something that we can take for granted. So if I think about the UK perspective, I can certainly say that in, in academia, for example, which ought to be all about excellence in every dimension, people have been very slow in leadership roles to acknowledge that the underrepresentation of black people is the result of an uneven playing field and that taking action to address that is a responsibility of every senior leader. And what we now have to do is to convert that that shift in, I suppose, the mindset and sense of ownership into measurable progress. And there's still a long way to go there. I mean, one of the other things that, that, that if I use another example from the, from the Academy, a few years ago, we conducted analysis at the Academy that showed that if you're a black engineering graduate, you are more than twice as likely to be unemployed six months post-graduation than your white counterpart, even when you control for the grade you got at your degree, your class of degree you got, and the type of university that you went to. And those differences persist. Black graduates were also less likely to get jobs in engineering. And those that did gain employment are paid less and actually also have a less positive experience in the workplace. So we thought, well, this is a terrible, terrible indictment, but you know it's important to expose it, but, but the really important thing is to take action to address it. So we developed a programme called the Graduate Engineering Engagement Programme, which is trying to increase the successful transition of black graduates and other um, underrepresented groups into engineering employment. And what this taught us is there is no magic bullet. You have to graft away at every aspect of the process and stick with it. So in this case, it's everything from supporting students by giving them access to role models, career surgeries, interview training, building confidence across a peer cohort. And on the other hand, working with the companies to understand, well, where is the bias in the hiring process creeping in? You know, what are the systemic barriers that, that they they haven't spotted already? And only by really, you know, grafting away at all of that can you expect to achieve, achieve the sort of change that we all need. So I think we do, we've made this important step forward in terms of, a commitment to improve, but we've got a long way to go before we can get to real empowerment and equity. And I also just want to flag that I think it's so important not just to focus on the D, but also on the I. So I always think of diversity and inclusion as being very much counting and culture. And inclusion, of course, means that everybody, irrespective of their personal characteristics, feels really welcome, really valued, able to contribute to the full Everyone can bring their sense of uniqueness and have that sitting alongside their sense of belonging to the collective. But that is not, we know, the daily experience for far too many people. And so I think looking for ways to cultivate those inclusive cultures and actually probably at a societal level for us to deepen our sense of empathy and shared connectedness at a time when I think there is a lot of evidence that societies feel quite fractured and polarised. It's going to be really important if we want to make this change that we're all seeking a reality. It strikes me talking to you um, that um, being the first woman head of the Royal Academy of Engineering must have been a great shock to some people. Yes, I I, I have to say that, I, you know, we talked about my name at the start and you can probably tell that my name is, it's actually a very gender neutral name. And if you 
use the title doctor as I do in my professional life, you, you don't know that I'm a woman until you see me. And I've had a lot of people who um, have to rapidly rearrange their facial expression when it they ask me what I do and it turns out that I'm the chief exec. Um, so I think I've I think I've hopefully jumped over that hurdle now. But yes, there are a lot of people who I think were quite perplexed at the the fact that that it turned out that I was the chief exec of the Royal Academy of Engineering, clearly not what they were expecting. But Janet, I think it's very important, you know, assumptions are are something that we all have embedded in us. And I think if we want to make progress in DNI, we need to have a huge amount of humility. None of us can be bias-free. We never will be. We can work on having a self, much higher degree of self-awareness. We can work on building our capacity to have empathy, but we cannot eradicate those biases. And assumptions are a product of our very clever brains that make connections between disparate things. And I had this brought home to me a few years ago when I went into a meeting and I was going to chair it and uh, went to get myself a cup of tea and somebody said to me, oh, look, oh, good, there's someone here to pour the coffee. And I said, oh, well, I'm having tea. You can help yourself to coffee. It's there if you'd like it. Not wanting to create a scene, but also not wanting to pour the coffee. And they went to help themselves. And I realised that they had a disability that meant that they needed assistance pouring the coffee. So it was just a brilliant reminder to me that we all have bias in us. We all make assumptions. And that's that humility is something we have to carry with us every day if we want to make a positive difference on DNI. I love that story. You are a mother, I'm a mother, and it fascinates me to know how you look at the world going forward for them. I mean, we've had this extraordinary pandemic, an amazing change for all of us uh, of mindset and everything. We've got this huge climate change cloud on our horizon. How do you look at things? Well, it's interesting. My kids are so excited about being alive today. They 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 look at me with pity that I had to grow up without all the wonderful technology that they now have. And I think it's it's important that we don't we don't limit ourselves because in our experience the change that we're experiencing has in many ways been frightening. And ultimately, you know, despair is a place which is it inactivates you. It doesn't it's not empowering. And so our, I think it's very important for, for the next generation that, that we just respect the fact they will bring something different to the table. They will have visions and a determination that we don't have. And I'm sure that you see it in the workplace as I do, that the younger generations have a, have a very different mindset to many of the people who are already in the workforce. And that is changing all of us. So I think society is in constant flux. We've gone through some incredible collective trauma and more lies ahead. But I am fundamentally optimistic about the power of human beings to, to do good things when, when we put our minds to it. On that wonderfully optimistic note, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Janet. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Moore.